Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Codson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Since we last discussed CBDCs back on 21st of July, another country, Nigeria, has chosen to pilot a CBDC. It was launched almost a month ago now on the 25th of October, and we can look forward to learning more about that from one of our panellists whose business was closely involved in the launch of the eNaira. The discussion about CBDCs has moved on in plenty of other ways too, about the division of labour between the central and the commercial banks, the relationship between CBDCs and stable coins has moved forward, the impact of CBDCs on existing intermediaries and infrastructures matters, and the risks that CBDCs represent to bank funding, monetary sovereignty, capital flows and innovation have all been debated avidly since we last talked about this subject. Last but not least, of course, we're going to talk about personal privacy, how CBDCs can protect that. And all of these issues are the subject of increasingly urgent discussion. Uh, to help us bring them into sharper focus, uh, we're joined by four experts in the field. Rob Patellano is head of the Financial Markets Division at the OECD in Paris, where he directs the analytical work that supports the Financial Markets Committee of the OECD, including its work on CBDCs. Ricardo Correa is Head of Digital Currencies at R3, where he runs a global CBDC working group that includes a number of central banks, and R3 is working with a number of central banks on various CBDC projects. Simon Chantry is co-founder and CIO at BIT, whose digital currency management system underpins two of the CBDCs to have gone live, and is licensed by a further four for pilot schemes, including that of the Central Bank of Nigeria. Kopia George is director of the Algorand Financial Innovation Lab at the University of Cape Town, a former research economist at the Bundesbank. He's involved in several CBDC projects around the world. We were hoping to be joined by Will Lovell, head of future technology at the Bank of England, but very sadly, he was called away this morning uh, by a family emergency. We, of course, will miss him, but we are thinking of him as we discuss CBDCs this afternoon. Now, in addition to our panellists, we do, of course, also have you, our audience, and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A or chat functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. And rest assured, I will not be saving them up to the end, but we'll answer them as we go along so you can be an integral part of the discussion as it proceeds. I'd like to begin uh, by asking what the current state of the CBDC market actually is. I took the trouble to check the, the Kiffmeister blog. Uh, he counts uh, 20 jurisdictions where central banks have either launched a, a retail CBDC, launched or about to launch or completed a pilot, it's four of them, uh, or launched or completed a proof of concept, six of them, and another eight are at some uh, fairly advanced stage of development. We've got another 44 uh, banks, so you've got 20 doing various things, we've got another 44 actually looking at the idea. Yet so far, only the Bahamas and the Eastern Caribbean have actually launched uh, a CBDC. Uh, China, of course, is being watched very closely uh, uh, of the larger economies. It's um, a bit of a top-down setup there rather than a bottom-up one, so uh, it's a lot easier. I read a Reuters report which suggested they had been throwing um, something like 100,000 developers uh, at, the, uh, at their CBDC project, so resources are not a constraint on what they're doing. Their pilot, um, something like 140 million wallets, um, uh, one and a half million merchants, uh, nine and a half billion of transactions have actually taken place during this pilot. So um, China is, is proceeding uh, apace and seems on course to, uh, to be ready in, in February 2022. So my question, uh, and Ricardo, I'd like to throw this at you first. Um, what explains why the Bahamas and the Eastern Caribbean, any countries have launched one? What's special about them, first thing? And secondly, You've got this long tail of 44 banks who um, are uh, looking at this topic. My question to you is, and I know you'll know the answer to this, how many of those central banks are capable of launching a CBDC? And by capable, I mean financially, organizationally, culturally, technologically, technical expertise. So it's a double-headed question for you there, but I'd be interested in your views on both those topics. Thank you, uh, Dominic, for uh, inviting us onto the panel and lovely to participate with my fellow, uh, uh, fellow panelists. So that's a big question. 
Um, so the work that we're doing, I mean, first and foremost, the Caribbean is really interesting, 13 odd countries, uh, lots of money movement between those 13 countries. And I know Simon's been close to that, uh, some of those projects, but a real need for uh, better money movement between the 13 Caribbean countries. And that's one of the key drivers that we see in that region. In terms of capability, I don't think there's any one answer. So, you know, technically, uh, well, what do we see? We see the tier one or what I call tier one central banks, the very large ones, uh, taking their time, being very cautious around the technology, but also looking at policy and business and other, other factors, of course. Technically, um, a lot of the bigger banks already run uh, infrastructure, of course, to, to, to manage their, their fiat currencies. But I'd suggest that, you know, as we see with smaller central banks, smaller countries, um, they will uh, they are looking to proceed with less of a build, more of a buy option, where you can buy something, configure it, and put it in fairly quickly. We've seen that in Nigeria, of course, Simon and, and the bid team there. Um, and uh, that project really supported by the private sector. So I'd suggest that for the most part, the central banks are leaning on partners, either be it in the private sector or other, to support their rollouts. I don't think that um, in the smaller side of uh, central banks, they have the wherewithal to run the entire thing on their own. We know that services such as AML, KYC, CTF uh, need to be managed and supported by other participants. Um, so I think there's a spread. I think you know there's there's a hell of a lot to consider when when rolling out a CBDC, as you mentioned. You know, there's technical, there's operational, there's policy, there's governance, there's there's so many different layers there that I think technically what we're seeing is is more of a supported model with a lot of uh, certainly what we see with the ECB, the BOE, and others. A lot of um, uh, a lot of debate, a lot of discourse with private and public sector to try and figure out how you divide and conquer all these various uh, services and, um, and, and operational concerns. So I think it's, uh, I don't think there's any one answer. I think, I think the, 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 the commonality is we do see a very strong public and private debate um, as these things get rolled out. Some are launching much quicker, of course, um, but there, 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 there doesn't seem to be, certainly from my perspective, a central bank that's able to do this completely on their own. But I'd be interested in other other views. Simon's been really close to obviously some of the projects that you mentioned there. But yeah. well, I'm, I'm desperate to hear from Simon about the Nigeria project in, in just a second. But but Copier, perhaps you could give us some thoughts first. Uh, you've got your 64 banks out there at various stages of development for a CBDC. How many of them are capable of doing it? And that's a non-trivial question. Yeah, I think it's mainly an organizational challenge that central banks face. I don't as as Ricardo said, I don't think many of them will look into building everything themselves. That, that makes no sense. And in fact, Bundesbank used to have a central bank digital currency for, for many years. And we, we used to have um, accounts for everybody on, on the Bundesbank balance sheet. We, we had a normal banking license. As an employee of Bundesbank, you still had an account directly with Bundesbank. One of the reasons it was shut down eventually was because the customer service was so poor that central banks feared that Bundesbank feared a reputational risk um, for itself. So I think central banks are careful to draw the line between staying in control of who gets access to the ledger, who manages the different parts that you need to get access from identity to this, the different mechanisms that you can use to, to transact with one another. Um, to the exchange with other payment rails. All of this will, will have to be sorted out. Um, but I don't think central banks will, will, will do it themselves. They will put in fairly good guidelines for the governance of these systems. And I think we are, we are slowly seeing sort of different models being debated. The DIS has put forward the discussion of an intermediated versus a hybrid model where you have payment service providers that can have larger or smaller balance sheets I think that's going to be an, an, an interesting and relevant debate to see how, how, how bold are central banks in opening up their balance sheets to other sorts of participants, um, maybe small fintech startups that serve niche communities that banks for many years struggled to reach. Uh, so I think that is, that is the debate that is happening. And it's not so much that, um, that there is a hesitation to uh, sort of to embrace the technology as it is the challenges around governance. And in many countries, you have legal, legal issues around 
legal tender status, around liabilities. There's, there's sort of around privacy that, that needs to be addressed first and foremost. But slowly but surely over the next few years, I think consensus will emerge around what are best practices. Um, and then I, I hope that many of the central banks will boldly move forward in adopting these technologies. Right now, Kipia, you brought up a, a, an important point there with your little anecdote about the, the Bundesbank. We often talk about CBDCs as if the central bank is going to do everything. They're going to issue this thing. They're going to settle it. They're going to operate the accounts. I think in reality, and the BIS papers are, are, are stressing this, that, that any CBDC is going to entail a, a strong measure of, of public-private uh, cooperation in which the central banks will provide the, the infrastructure, if you like, and the commercial banks will, will provide the customer-facing service. I think that's something that's become very clear uh, in the last six to, to nine months. Um, and uh, so do we... <laughs> this is a sort of open-ended question. Right? Do we actually need to know in advance what a CBDC ecosystem will look like? And I'm not talking here even on a global scale. I'm just talking here inside one country. Or can you sort of start somewhere and say, well, you commercial banks, you run the accounts, we'll run the infrastructure. Let's see what, see what happens. Oh, I'd be very cautious about this. There are strong path dependencies in this. Once you put in place a closed loop system, um, a walled garden like Facebook, it's very hard to move to the model of the internet, which is open loop, where you have lots of participants that can compete with one another, that lower cost for, for consumers. I think it's a, it's a big decision upfront. Do we want this as an open system or do we want this as a closed system? And there's advantages and disadvantages to both a closed loop system is easier to manage in many regards. An open system ensures interoperability and facilitates heterogeneity, which is good for financial stability, which is good to serve different communities. Uh, it's, it, this is, I think, one of the key debates um, that central banks are currently having. I don't think we should just go into this easily. We should have a debate and we should learn from history. And, and from, from my perspective and from Algorand's perspective, this open model is, is strictly preferable. In the work that we've been doing with central banks from you know, small Eastern European central banks to G20 central banks. It is, it is always our model to push for an open, interoperable, highly competitive system because ultimately that's what, what consumers will benefit from most. Anyway, so we can't throw the cards up in, in the air and see, see where they land. Simon, um, this latest pilot I've mentioned a couple of times is, is the Ianaira. Its origins clearly like the Bahamas and Eastern Caribbean are associated with what's going on, grow out of what's happening in Nigeria itself, where they've had a sort of clampdown on cryptocurrency, among other things. They have exchange controls, they've got inflation problems. It seems to me, reading the, the, the papers, that it's a pretty tightly controlled CBDC too. You have to have a bank account to, to get at it. There are caps on, on how much of it you can hold and the size of the payments you can make. So tell us more about it, Simon. What, 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 what does it add to what we've learned already from, from the Bahamas and, and Eastern Caribbean? Yeah, thanks, Dominic, for, uh, for having me today. I did want to make one comment just generally on the private sector, public-private partnerships. I do think that central banks have the opportunity to benefit from innovation in the private sector. And so uh, we were talking about how, like, do, do central banks have the capacity or the wherewithal to build? And I would argue that I think it's it's sort of a necessity that they take advantage of the of, of the advancements in the private sector. Um, and the way that I see that coming to, to fruition and especially coming to fruition sort of tangibly with BITS, digital currency management system, is we are constantly adding new features to our solution. And you think about if one central bank was doing that in in their particular country, they're not going to benefit from all the features and advancements that are happening in all deployments worldwide. Whereas if you, when you partner with the private sector, you're able to benefit from feature development, iterations and advancements as they happen across the board. So I think that's an argument for, uh, again, for these public-private partnerships. Um, as it pertains to uh, the eNaira, very excited to be involved with the Central Bank of Nigeria, of course. It's, uh, it's definitely, um, they're definitely a, a fast-moving, forward-thinking central bank. I think this early iteration of the eNaira that you're seeing is just the start of the journey. So as you mentioned, uh, Dominic, you do need a BVN, a bank verification number, in order to sign up right now. Um, but the Central Bank of Nigeria is moving more so towards what Pierre is talking about, a more open system that enables the unbanked and other payment service providers to integrate. Um, Nigeria actually has a, quite an advanced 
payment system. And that's both from the perspective of the underlying networks, as well as payment service providers, a variety of payment service providers that service different areas of the economy and the financial system. And the Central Bank of Nigeria, uh, I think, values that highly and wants to ensure that as the e-Naira evolves, it takes advantage of uh, and, and enables those payment service providers to augment their feature set and augment their capabilities. Uh, so that's, again, it's a journey and the governor has sort of reiterated that. This is the initial stages. I, I think uh, they, like a lot of central banks who, as you mentioned, Dominic, have some challenges surrounding inflation and exchange controls and are really trying to determine the best strategy for how to regulate the crypto industry. Um, I, I think they're looking to move quickly on their CBDC to experiment with some tools to address these. And, and we're very excited to be you know, with them for that ride. Facilitate some features to meet these challenges. Thank you, Simon. We, we lost you a little bit at the end there, but I don't think it was too serious, but um, you might want to be mindful of that. Uh, Rob, perhaps I could bring you in at, at, at this point. Um, as Simon has just alluded, you know, central banks have to tread a, a careful path. On the one hand, they're, they're seeking to retain control of monetary policy and monetary conditions, keep a lid on inflation, look at the exchange rate and so on. On the other hand, they're very keen to encourage um, innovation, new forms of of financial provision, if if you like. So where do you think they are striking the balance between um, retaining control, if you like, and actually facilitating competition and facilitating the growth of what we've come to call the, the digital economy? You know, is it 80% control and 20% innovation liberation, or is it the other way around? Dominic, mean, that's a great question. So, um... I think with so many um, research initiatives and pilots uh, and proof of concepts that are that are um, occurring, you're probably seeing a range of that. I think they're trying to strike the, the, the balance because, you know, maybe a, a year ago, two years ago, perhaps when we were talking, universal CBDC um, was less prominent. And there was much more discussion about wholesale, wholesale uh, CBDC and uh, much more focus on control and about central banks um, being conservative and wanting to, to, to really understand and manage the reputational risks. And that perhaps was in face of um, the initial um, step with respect to Libra. But I think we've come a long way in the sense that there's much more openness to discuss a universal CBDC, much more awareness of the different types of um, dynamics and modalities of CBDC and, and how they could benefit society in terms of you know, financial inclusion, efficiency, speed, et cetera. So I think that that, is, um, th that debate is moving the right direction. However, I would say that, um, you know, if you think about um, what could make the central bank lose control and perhaps other digital, you know, other forms of digital coins, whether they're, they're you know, so-called coins in the, uh, in the digital um, market, I think that this dynamic, to me at least, is less concerning where I do think a CBDC could coexist with various forms of stable and unstable coins um, in, a, in a digital ecosystem, frankly, that mirrors the current cash ecosystem, the, the tr traditional financial markets ecosystem, where you have cash, you have secured deposits, money market funds, and a whole range of non-bank finance. And I think we're starting to see that actually roll out in the digital sphere. And it, it has to do with pricing, with convenience, with privacy, in similar ways that you're seeing in the traditional markets in some sense. And we're seeing that diversification and differentiation now starting to play out in the digital realm. So I think central banks are gonna find their way and different central banks are gonna take different decisions based on their needs and based on their ecosystem, that what they want their full traditional and digital financial systems to be. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the question of, of stable coins, Rob, because they're clearly one of the ways in which central banks might, if you like, lose control. And it's interesting that the BIS, at least in the shape of the Committee on Payments and Market Infrastructures, is looking to extend its principles for, for financial market infrastructures, like governance, risk management, settlement finality, claims on, on issuers, and so on. It's looking to extend those to, to stable coins which indicates that these have come into focus in the central banking community as, as a something which one level, as you say, they could happily be part of a, of a 
an ecosystem with plenty of variety in it. But at the same time, they could, of course, also have exactly the same effect as a CBDC. They could start to shift funding away uh, from banks. Um, they could put enormous amounts of power into the hands of, of, of private interests. Um, we've talked about Libra now, now, DM in the past, and that clearly, as you just said a minute ago, Rob, um, really started this whole CBDC debate. So, Ricardo, what do you what do you think um, the central banks are thinking now about about stable coins? Do you think they are concerned that these could become a sufficiently powerful rival to CBDCs to actually drive them out of the market, or even if they're not that powerful, start to cause? Um, disruption to the ways in which in which banks fund themselves. In fact, I, you might have some observation on what a stablecoin really is. Like, you know, is it central? It's obviously not central bank money, but is it commercial bank money? Is it a new type of deposit? What is it? Give us some some thoughts yeah. about what it all means. Good question. And sometimes the lines do blur uh, when you start looking at things like synthetic CBD uh, synthetic CBDCs which arguably is like a regulated stable coin. So there is some blurring of the lines there. Um, I think, again, depending on jurisdiction, you'll see a slightly different posture from the various actors on both the public and private side. You know, we opened up the year this year with a little bit more clarity from the, op uh, the office of the, the controller here in the US, providing some guidance around stable coins, federated banks in the US, could now start to use stable coins to settle obligations between them. So that was kind of interesting, uh, you know, uh, certainly a positive turn saying, hey, you know, we don't have a CBDC here in the US, maybe it's a private sector initiative. And certainly we've seen in the US, the Fed being a little bit more cautious, some, some countries being a little bit more um, uh, kind of uh, more advanced in terms of working on their CBDCs here in the US, certainly we see a posture of private sector perhaps being able to issue and control and manage and operate uh, something that does look like a synthetic CBDC on behalf of the Fed. So, you know, my, my personal view is I do believe that these things can coexist. I think we'll see a proliferation of them. Um, you know, the, the big question is, do we want every commercial bank to issue a stable coin? And then do we want every other organization, be it a big tech or a, or a corporate to issue a stable coin? And how will these things then interoperate? So interoperability, as you guys know, has been kind of the, the topic du jour this year and will undoubtedly continue next year. We see the MCBDC project as well as Project Dunbar from the BIS exploring the, the interoperability of multiple CBDCs, not really stable coins, but ultimately, you know, once we have a taxonomy that tells us, or topology rather, that tells us how these things might coexist, it wouldn't it wouldn't matter whether it's a CBDC or a stablecoin per se, but um, different pressures, different regions, different economies, I think have a completely different stance. There is pressure, of course. I know that the commercial banks certainly have changed their posture around the risk of uh, credit allocation as well as customer disintermediation. Those are the two big ones that we're seeing. So um, lots of movement towards trying to figure out you know, if if there was a world with so many choices, how would you stand out? And, you know, Rob, Rob suggested it kind of reflects the world we have today. Lots of different choice, lots of money, kind of different options on, on money. Of course, it becomes more fluid in a digital realm than a physical realm, perhaps. Um, but still, ultimately, isn't it just about the choice that you have and the options that you have, and then trying to pick out you know, the right characteristics and value proposition for a specific type of value. So my sense is it's going to diverge. We'll have lots of different things that will emerge. And then eventually we'll see a, a convergence into, you know, a set of uh, digital value that makes sense. Mm -hmm. We're getting a couple of questions in now, which, um, which I'd like to address in a second. But before yeah. I do, I, I can imagine asset managers issuing stable coins not just not just banks today we've got an awful lot of these these things around so are central banks maybe it's a question for you rob but kpi you might have some thoughts on it too it, would it make sense for the central banks to start throwing grit in the machine to to ricardo's point about interoperability should we should there be less interoperability between cbdc stable coins uh commercial bank money yeah. and indeed physical cash yeah so first of all i i really agree with what with what um, was just what uh, said by Ricardo, because I do think that this diversity 
is a benefit of a well-functioning financial system. And that diversity also doesn't just include product diversity, but includes diversity that's defined by pricing and risk and convenience. So one can appreciate that in a well-functioning financial markets, the products themselves and the supply and demand will, you know, will, will affect the pricing and the risk. And, and that's, that's good. So then I guess the question is, is there a need, if, if the central bank and the regulators and financial stability, you know, macro prudential um, uh, authorities have at a very macro level, have the system mapped out and regulated well from a macro and micro prudential standpoint, do they need to actually put it into the system to slow down and to undermine some of the benefits that digital is creating? Or rather, do you just wanna make sure that the regulation allows for innovation, but it uh, it slows down areas of risk that could become systemic. Now, I would I would I would say that's different than grit because it's really well placed and focused to slow down acceptable risks from turning into spillovers and systemic risk. Now, that's that's a concept. I think that's easier said than done. Um, but I do think that if you map out the system at a very high level and through financial stability councils can get the different supervisors and regulators together to see really to try and calibrate the type of policy tools they need to put in place and even forward guidance on regulation. I think you're seeing some very large regulators, including in the United States, providing communication. That communication itself is slowing down some risk. So I think the tools are available without undermining some of the, um, the benefits. I, I guess I would, I would, the, the Bundesbank is still strong in me and I, I would, I would take a bit of a counterpoint. It's, it's very easy for central banks to step outside of their mandate. Throwing grit into the system is not within their mandate. Price stability and financial stability, maybe other things if, you, if you're a fancy central bank. But these are really the core two things. So the question is, how can we ensure price and financial stability? It's important in the debate about stable coins to, to realize what stable coins are used for today by and large, and that's to have a safe place when it's risk off that is still on a crypto exchange, but it doesn't force you to incur the, the cost of withdrawing from the exchange. It's not, a, it's, not a huge, it's not a huge sector. I think the fear of central banks is that with EM moving in, that we might actually start losing control of our core mandate of price stability, of financial stability. And it's not easy to, to enact global regulation for stable coins. I think nobody will, will object to a stable coin being issued by a regulated financial institution, be it a bank or an asset manager. There's very specific use cases. They reach the right audience for, for this. I think where the problem comes in if basically unregulated entities like, like Facebook start creating financial instruments. It's important in the comparison with cash to, to realize historically it was the other way around. We first had legal tender and then we start to innovate on top of that. Then we had deposits and you know, more sophisticated financial instruments. Now in, 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 in crypto and digital payments, it's the other way around. We have all these you know, esoteric instruments and now we are thinking, about, oh, maybe we should create a floor of functionality and a level playing field and a basic infrastructure to, to react to this private sector demand, which is clearly there. If something like Tether attracts $70 billion, nobody knows where they go. It shows you that people are willing to incur this risk just to get the functionality. If that's not a clear sign to central banks, I don't know what is. It means central banks need to react and need to provide something to, to satisfy customer demand. Otherwise, they risk losing their core mandate and losing monetary sovereignty. Thank you, Kopia. Good point. Thanks. And they indeed are reacting. I'd like to address some of the questions we've had. Uh, one from John Hulk here. Uh, who says cash, by which he means notes and coins, are specie, are issued to the public in exchange by them for free. Does he? Does the panel think CBDCs would have charges involved? We did one of the early arguments for it was a negative interest rate, uh, of course, and presumably they'll continue to collect the difference between the face value and the production cost, which will be even fatter margin now. Um, does does do you? Do you think that um, there's a case, maybe Simon, you, you've had to consider this question in some of the projects you've worked on. Is any central bank thinking of charging for providing you know, cash in effect uh, in digital form? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so right now, the central banks that I've seen haven't been looking to, uh, to to charge. I think the way that we'll likely see the model evolve is that you'll see peer-to-peer -peer transactions uh, be free, and then commercial transactions may bear a fee that would go back to the payment service provider uh, that they're dealing with, and then that fee would be proportional to the service that they're getting. So again, if the central bank in partnership with a private organization is operating the CBDC network and then opening it up to licensed financial institutions and payment service providers to provide payment services to the general public and enterprises, then they will have the ability to compete in a free market as to you know, what the value of those services are. So we expect to see uh, competition that will drive fees down substantially lower than existing payment methods. Although again, that's yet to be determined. And I think initially central banks are looking to uh, release, you know, the first versions of their CBDCs to uh, to see how the market uh, reacts and, and what the initial uptick is, and then slowly iterate over time and experiment with business models and access models that make sense. Um, I, I, I do agree with Copier's statement before that it does seem, especially when you take into consideration the success that DeFi has had and crypto more broadly, that more open systems are more likely to succeed. And so this is where there are some, I would say, challenges for central banks to measure the importance of AML compliance and, and uh, transaction monitoring and controls versus the undeniable success that more open systems have. That's sort of my two cents on it for now. Perhaps Ricardo might, might have insight as well. Yeah, thanks, Simon. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, Copier uh, mentioned, you know, price and financial stability. What's interesting is, is that we see a lot of people um, you know, jump into the crypto space because there's a lack of price uh, uh, kind of stability. And so trying to play those completely crazy troughs and peaks, you know, just read an article this morning, I can't afford my house, but thank God for crypto, no, I can. So, you know, so it's really interesting how you start to see kind of, you know, uh, the new new kind of way to think about these things where, you know, we've wanted stability, we want control, um, but again, it's undeniable. What we're seeing in DeFi, I see a question on DeFi. I love these questions, by the way, um, and how this all comes together. But DeFi is really interesting, really interesting to see how that's evolving. And that's open. It's kind of very low barrier to entry. You don't know who's at the end of your transaction, but hey, that's okay. I'm willing to take the risk because, you know, the gap is so big. Um, so so I think there's there's definitely a transition going on. And I think the central banks, um, certainly that we're speaking to are trying to ensure that they they pull the right levers and they pull them at the right levels. Because if you, you Dominic, you'd said 80-20 earlier, is it 80 control and 20% innovation? I think that would be a huge miss. Um, certainly, again, another question on the BOE, this notion of you know the central bank operating system on the money, like how thin or how fat should that be in order to allow true openness and innovation to happen. So it's uh, the jury's out, we don't know. But I think what's important is, is that we provide, certainly from you know, Simon's perspective, from BIT and from R3 and other providers, you, you, you just provide the right levers right, to make those decisions. And, and it's not a one and done forever. Those levers will change over time. And I think you know, as this evolves, uh, having those right levers, I think will give the central banks the opportunity to participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, John Polk's raised an interesting point there. I mean, this infrastructure the central banks build has to be paid for somehow. It would be different from the way they pay for the existing RTGS system, I guess. Um, John also goes on to, to ask a follow-up question about, about cross-border payments, but I, I don't want to deal with that straight away. I'd like to deal first with, with the question that Andrea Tranquilini has raised. Uh, his question is, among the various projects, which of them, if any, is linked not only to pure cash transfer, cash payments, but also to securities settlement and central bank money. That's an important infrastructural question. You've got these central securities depositories, which are settling, for the most part, uh, securities transactions in central bank money through transfers between um, the central bank accounts of, of certain, privileged, um, certain privileged banks. One of the things which has 
slowed down, if you like, progress in the securities market infrastructure been the lack of fiat currency on these blockchain networks. And CBDC, in theory, puts that right. So Andrea's opened up a huge uh, wasp's nest or bag of tricks here, which we, we could probably explore a whole webinar on our own about. But um, it, it, in any of the projects you've looked at, uh, and, and I'm Simon, Ricardo, Copier, maybe each of you have, have views on this, has actually considered specifically the question of securities market settlement. Copier, you go first. Yeah, in some of the projects that I'm involved through Algorand, we, we have that discussion very actively because, as you said, legacy quote-unquote payment systems tend to be super effective. In Europe, it's hard to think of a more effective payment system than Target 2. South Africa, we have Samos that, that works perfectly fine and has so for many years. It's constantly updated and renewed. So, you know, that is, that is fine. What, what the discussion always yields is the question, if we, have a, if, if we have a retail CBDC that is highly scalable, that has all these additional features and functionality, do we still need all this horizontally and vertically disintegrated value chain that traditional asset securitization has, has attached to it? And the answer is no, on, on blockchain, this is both horizontally and vertically integrated. You, you get the full value chain um, on the blockchain, including the settlement, the clearing, the trading, the custody, all of this can be done within the same infrastructure and on the same, on the same chain. Uh, so I think there's, 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 an, there's a big question for CSDs um, and other sort of legacy infrastructure providers, what their role is going to be in this new system, because new, new entrants are carving up the space and so if, if everything is integrated on the same, within the same infrastructure and you are sitting on the outside as a, as a legacy infrastructure provider, I think it's going to be difficult to make, that, to make that adjustment. On the other hand, for consumers, this is a fantastic thing. We see the, the cost of, of asset securization go down because of tokenization. And a lot of that has to do with the removal of sort of artificial frictions in these systems. So I think when, when you think about financial inclusion and sort of the property deeds and tokenization. If you have a centralized, uh, central uh, national ledger for, for this, I think you can create great value, especially for people who have been excluded from the existing financial system because the entry costs are still relatively high for, the, for low LSMs. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, this, is, this is a great opportunity, but there will be losers in this in this transformation that we right, are so CBDC seeing. opens up not just securities markets uh, to become more efficient and have lower costs and lower risks, but all sorts of other asset classes as well. Um, just very quickly, Simon, the projects you've worked on has just a yes or no, really. Have secu has security settlement been, a, been an active part of those discussions? One of the advantages- It's, it's on the road. Yeah, it's on the roadmap, but it's not one of the initial items on the roadmap. Mm -hmm. So we're certainly working towards it, but it, it's not there yet. I do want to give a quick plug, Dominic, to say that uh, I think the firm Digital Asset is uh, is paving the way for uh, sort of financial markets instruments in digitizing them, tokenizing them, and preparing them for that sort of atomic swap functionality. So there is work being done on that side. But, you know, as Copier said, it is possible to do it all within the same infrastructure. So I'm, you know, keen to see how the space evolves. I'll just jump in there real quick. Um, uh, Domin, Simon's right. You see DA uh, kind of shifting into the security side capital markets pretty heavily. Um, one of the key projects we've been working on is Project Jura. I'm sure you guys might have seen that project's uh, collaboration between the French Central Bank, the Swiss Central Bank, and the BIS, looking at cross-border PVP and DVP. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in Switzerland, you have the SDX, which is you know, uh, arguably a synthetic CBDC, you might call it. Uh, they manage um, the money for, for Switzerland. And with their new FINMA uh, license, they now are perfectly placed for security settlements. So that project is really exciting. That is, you know, true kind of, uh, it's been a year and a half um, kind of exploring that space. But security settlement arguably is one of, the, one of the biggest kind of opportunities that we see with CBDCs and also stablecoins to some degree. Yeah. Well, back to from securities back to cash, John Falk's other question is, could I use a national CBDC in another country? In other words, pay e-Naira to, to 
fund a, a Ghanaian taxi, which of course, as he points out, raises FX issues. Now I'm interested in this, this topic because clearly the cost of cross-border payments has been a, an issue for international regulators. Um, you know, the G7, the G20 uh, have both talked about using CBDCs to, to make cross-border payments uh, more efficient. The CPMI, the BIS group, which I mentioned earlier, um, you know, mentioned linking CBD systems as one of the building blocks for more efficient cross-border payments. Um, you, Ricardo, brought up Project Dura. We've had Project Ubin, uh, Project Dunbar going on now. All of them looking at, at, at cross, you know, experimenting with, with cross-border payments using CBDCs, kind of developing the prototypes for actually doing this. So my question is, um, you know, Cross-border payments are famously expensive and famously or notoriously slow. Uh, and the existing system of correspondent banks, SWIFT, CLS, are all those bodies going to be history um, if we can link up CBDCs and fulfill John Falk's desire there to pay for our Ghanaian taxi with uh, e-Naira? Um, Rob, you're sort of smiling. You're, you're our expert on, on the way international <laughs> regulators are thinking. I thought, I thought I could take a stab at your question until the, until the last part of it. So it's very hard to say if certain institutions will base their demise because of this. But, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair point in the extreme. I do, I mean, I, you know, not, not to speak for the BIS, but they're, they're obviously doing phenomenal work bringing together technology in different central banks to jump from doing pilots of domestic CBDCs all the way to thinking about, you know, MC, um, CBDCs and working on interoperability. Not just uh, not just for the, the the pure payment, but obviously the forex, and to try and bring down price and improve improve efficiency. And as well, since since you mentioned the G seven, I just think it's fascinating to think about CBDCs, even for international development and for the SDGs, and that there are ways to actually use CBDCs for sort of the cross border transfer of value when um, development agencies or central banks on their behalf are sending CBDCs to deal with crises in, in low-income countries or countries that have floods or earthquakes, et cetera, and to use CBDCs um, in combination with other technologies such as smart contracts, particularly if the home country or the country that's receiving the money also has CBDCs, where they have mechanisms maybe through the national account, uh, account of, uh, of, of a universal CBDC, where you know the individuals who have their money at the, at the central bank and you can target international development through cross-border payment to the local central bank or to these people directly in a very efficient and targeted way. The future of international CBDC, if you can actually pull it off and it has huge benefits that are not just about efficiency, but really about policy effectiveness, even on the international development level. Didn't really get to your question, but I think it's just saying that on, on the international scale, there really, there's a lot, uh, a lot of opportunity that go even well beyond the central banking efficiency. Ricardo, just a John Falk specific question about FX issues. Can you see central banks getting into the FX business? I did see some BIS survey where 11 of them, I think it was, I think the number was 11. It's kind of stuck in my mind said, yeah, we might be happy to do that. And uh, that's they disclosed who the 11 were. Yeah, Project Dunbar, I mean, just to pick on Dunbar for a second, uh, is exploring all of these things. I think the big, and I think Simon touched on it, cross-atomic swaps uh, being a big deal you know, realizing that there's not just going to be one technology, one ledger globally. So there needs to be some interoperability of those things. And of course, FX always comes up. Like, how will we manage FX? The easy answer is, hey, let's just use what we have today. You know, we'll use an Oracle. The Oracle will gather the FX kind of from the traditional marketplace. But as the, as, as the traditional marketplace gets used less and less, let's just say, and, you know, the, the new world starts to to be used more, will those rates be different? And so, you know, there's new opportunities coming up and this starts to touch on the likes of Uniswaps and Aave and the DeFi space that's emerging. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, listen, the jury, there's no, there's no answer yet. Will, will the central banks be able to do that? Well, they could be perfectly placed to do that if in fact the new infrastructure suggests that the central banks are moving money between themselves. And certainly there's some really interesting configurations that Dunbar is exploring around how that might work technically. And once you have that technical substrate in place, what, what services then might you overlay on top of these things? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's no yes or no answer. Yeah. Another, another area where the division of labor between the central bank and the commercial bank has to be 
clear, but also has to be worked, has to be worked right. out. I guess so. What so Ricardo brought up a really important point. We these the, there's an historic example where you had different disconnected networks that eventually became interconnected with one another, and it's the internet. It's exactly how it was originally developed with a lot of state support until it has reached a certain technological maturity where we had the standards that ensure interoperability to make sure that all the different applications are, that are being built on top of it can actually succeed and can talk to one another. And I think we can learn a lot from the way that the internet has, has developed when it comes to the design of, of CVDC. And then the, the, the boundary between cross-border transactions and cross-payment channel transactions will become much more blurred. It's, it's, it can be more challenging to have within a country connect different rails than across countries if both of them use a DLT-based CBDC. So I, but I think there's, there's solutions that are being tested and Dunbar is, 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 a, is a great example, being tested everywhere. And uh, we will see sort of what emerges. With the internet, it took us a long time though. It's important to realize that the internet became commercial in 1994. It was developed originally in 1969. There's 25 years in between where it was just a few universities and you know, a couple of engineers hacking away on it before we opened it up to the, to the broader public. And five years after that was done, there was a, there was a, a bit of a, of a crisis with the dot-com bus. So I think it's, it's important to, to acknowledge that central banks are doing the work of 25 years in, in the span of just four or five years. I think it's really amazing that, that yeah, we can I mean, actually get close to pulling this off. And CBDCs aren't uh, just internet, not just exchanging data. I can't remember how big the FX market is, but it's 600 trillion a day or, or whatever it is. It raises real questions if you're linking up CBDC systems about the operational uh, um, and anti-fraud resilience of, of different central banking CBDC systems, doesn't it? So I can see this. We'll look, we'll look for the outcome project Dunbar with interest. Um, Stephen Hugh has asked a question. Do you think the commercial bank balance sheets are ready for, for digital currencies? Um, I assume Stephen is referring here to the possibility that their, a large chunk of their liabilities may disappear. Uh, if a CBDC comes along or indeed a stablecoin issued by an asset manager starts to take away their deposit funding. Um, I don't know to what extent you know, commercial banks are worrying about that. Um, do you, Rob? So, you know, I think the thinking has evolved. And even when we had our first conversations a little over a year ago, that I think there, there was more concern about what would happen to commercial banks. But if you think about the structure of, of the flows in the financial system, with the central banks being at the heart of it, if we think creatively, in the event, in the event that there's some product, say it's a central bank universal CBDC that sucks the money out of central banks, presumably with planning, of course, I don't think central banks would allow that to happen and they have pricing and they have account caps that would prevent that from happening. But let's say they decided not to use that. What are their other alternatives? Well, of course, another alternative simply that the central bank wants the banking system to, you know, um, to, to facilitate intermediation to the real economy. So they could easily step back in. If they get a lot of inflow of, of, of digital cash, they can easily re-intermediate that back to fund the, the banking system, particularly if they're supervising those banks. There are clearly mechanisms to do that. It may not be the current operational feature of many central banks, but there are clearly ways to do that. And equally, they could do that to the non-banking system too. So let's say the CBDC pulled a lot of money, you know, if the US launched it and it pulled money out of the, 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 the money market funds, the central bank could engage in, in you know, reverse reaper operations to refund these parts of the financial system in a very efficient way if they chose to do so. But I think frankly, even before they did that, my understanding is that many central banks are creating or, or running pilots with CBDCs with mechanisms in mind to make sure that those CBDCs are seen as cash and not seen as an alternative to you know, CDs or other or, or even money market funds that, that pay a return. So my guess is the pricing mechanism alone, at least during normal periods, won't earn, undermine the commercial banking system. In a crisis, that may be a different issue, and that's for a separate conversation. Do you, um, is there a possibility that a CBDC could actually be a flop? In other words, you know, the central bank issues this, but consumers don't adopt it, the merchants don't adopt it, the banks are sort of antsy about it for reasons which we've just, just discussed. So the network effects don't kick in. Um, there's a lot to do to make it work, isn't there? You've got to 
to make it available at the points of sale to retail one you've got to make it compatible with all the existing devices and applications which consumers use you've got to work with not just banks but with payment service providers many of whom have not yet been invented uh, to get it adopted by those consumers and merchants um, uh, and you've got all these innovative startups who might have different and better ideas simon i mean how often do the central banks you talk to think well christ this thing might not actually work of course it's i think it's a practical consideration and again i think that the central banks uh need to recognize and study what has been a success in market to date um, from the private sector and that's sort of where i typically harken back to what has caused uh crypto and DeFi to experience its surge in use that it has over the last decade and what elements of that can be borrowed to inform the design of CBDCs, not just at the technical level, but also from an access policy, you know, and configuration perspectives. Um, so yeah, it certainly is a, a consideration. And I think, you know, central banks, it's just another challenge that central banks are embarking on is how, you know, how, how can you upgrade the technology of your currency um, and make it attractive to uh, to the economy and the financial system. Now they do have, uh, because central banks enjoy a, a close relationship with the state, there's a number of ways that we could see um, them being able to uh, sort of increase usage out of the gate. And that would be migrating different payment streams onto a CBDC network and, and you know, slowly testing these payment streams um, and uh, and I guess incentivizing use as well. This is where it would be interesting to see uh, interest rates applied to different tiers of wallets, different types of wallets. So I think there's a lot of levers to sort of go back to an analogy that Ricardo had earlier in the panel. There are a lot of levers that can be pulled to make uh, transacting on CBDC networks more desirable and, uh, and more effective for particular use cases and stakeholders. Uh, and we're really beginning that journey to see you know, which levers can be pulled and not have a negative effect on the financial system and the, and the existing players, um, but still provide the utility and the, and the benefits that the research has sort of you know, claimed over the last few years that, that we could experience by the introduction and, and proliferation of, of CBDC networks especially interconnected significantly. Now we're into our last 10 minutes and I do want to touch briefly on, on privacy and on um, a point you raised earlier, Ricardo, about DeFi before we before we shut, uh, close the, the session. But just before I do, you raised, the, the, the Simon, and, and you both raised the technical perspective. Uh, now, Copier, obviously cryptocurrencies have run into this speed and scalability constraints with, with blockchain, you know, five transactions a second or whatever it is. It's also run into increasingly heavy public criticism for excessive energy consumption. How can CBDCs escape those same criticisms? You just have to use technologies that, that don't use heavy fossil fuels. And there are several DLT providers that, that have managed to do that with, with proof of stake. Uh, the energy consumption has gone down orders of magnitude. Um, the, China, the Chinese central bank is not using blockchain, is it? Fritz? Nobody knows. So we actually, we, we asked Ming Chung Chuan a while ago and nobody knows exactly. So he, he has been a bit vague <laughs> in what precisely their technology is, but like the numbers that came out were like 300,000 TPS, which seems tough, even if it's just an Oracle or like a, like a SQL database that they are running somewhere in the basement, it seems really tough to achieve. Also, you have to you have to look at this from from a user perspective. How many transactions per seconds do you need on a nation scale level? For a country like South Africa, 50 to 60 million people, you need between 1,000 and 2,000 TPS, except around Christmas and maybe payday, where you want to go up to 3,000. So, and it boils down to: Do you can you actually make a CBDC useful for people? Can they actually use it to pay with sort of instant settlement finality, with sort of this feeling of I pay and it's it's done. I don't have to wait 20 seconds or, or longer until this has happened. If you can achieve this sort of usability feature, you don't actually need to talk too much about should it be legal tender? Do we have to put a lot of regulation in place to ensure it is widely used? You should make it so attractive that merchants who at the moment pay 70% of the merchant service fees uh, of the cost of cards is MSF is paid directly by the merchants. They have, they have an immediate incentive 
to, to switch to a system with lower cost and with, with more functionality where you can enable sort of through smart contracts, new kinds of use cases that, that you don't have today. I think this is, this is how you win people over from cash and, and other payment channels to a CBDC. And then you don't have to put like to wield the heavy hand of the state with, do you accept taxes in CBDC or do you enforce it by law? I, and I think many central banks will be very anxious to, to actually in, in, enforce regulation and laws that require the use of CBDC. I think many will go the, the softer route initially to say, let's see if we can get this right. And if we do, people will use it. Mm-hmm. Ricardo, do you have any observations on the speed, scalability, energy consumption issues? Just very quickly, we're into our last five minutes now. Yeah, I think a lot of the projects we're working on, that becomes the, the key thing. So it's performance and privacy. And you know, performance is a process. It's uh, it's not it's not um, uh, it's not something that you you achieve from one day to the next. It's something that you go on a journey on, and you eventually get there by tweaking and 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 refactoring and you know more infrastructure, changing the the applications and so on. So for me, performance is just a runway. Give me a runway. Give me you know kind of a target, and we'll get there. Um, I think on the energy consumption, three hundred thousand TPS. Well, Dom, we'll get there. I don't, well, to, to, to Copia's point, do you need that? I mean, you've also got to look at... You know, China, well, you do, I think. Yes, China, there's a lot maybe, of people there. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're right. In China, in China, you probably do. And we hear these crazy numbers, you know, 500,000 per second, 300,000 per second. It's like, how much is the payload? Where are the servers? Is the wire that thick or that thick? I mean, all these things come into play. So performance, for me, is a journey. I think the bigger one is privacy. Um, and then the, the energy consumption, the green aspect of this thing. So, yes, I think there's many different technologies today which have a much, much lower footprint. And the interesting question is, how much energy consumption are we burning on the current payment system today? And if you can look at that and then go, right, from there, now let's think about what we need to do for tomorrow. I think that would be a good exercise versus trying to compare, you know, Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus other technologies. I think we should start with what are we doing today and how can we better it tomorrow? I'm going to ask you all a question about DeFi in a minute. Before I do, you brought up privacy, uh, Ricardo. I, I'd hate this to not be mentioned on this webinar. So privacy, Rob, um, it, it's a dilemma for central banks, this one, isn't it? Uh, do you think that the, the, the sort of technical fixes have been put forward for this, these zero-knowledge proofs, I don't understand how they work, or secure enclaves, we've got blind signatures, all sorts of layered data management, all sorts of ideas have been put forward. But basically, it's a contradiction if a central bank is controlling this, this money and, and can see every transaction that's going on, there is a privacy problem, is there not? So how do you track a balance between their desire to mitigate financial crime and their desire to respect, in liberal democracies anyway, the privacy of the citizen? Thanks, Dominic. And I would say that I'm certainly not an expert in that area, so I, I, will, I will not really answer that and keep it short to say, I think that from, from, an, from an OECD standpoint, we really think about the values of the country and of the central bank. So when you're thinking about privacy and G7 principles, it's really really a concern of certain countries that are issuing CBDC and, and don't respect privacy issues around it. Uh, that can have spillover effects, particularly if that CBDC takes on an international uh, international realm. But I won't get into the technical issues. Perhaps my, my peers on the call can do that. Yeah, there's certain private enterprises, but we're not particularly comfortable looking at seeing our data either. I think so. It's not purely a public sector problem. Um, we have a, only one minute left, so I'd like to just to jump straight to to um, to DeFi. And as we said at the beginning of this discussion, CBDCs are, in in the end, what triggered everything we've talked about this afternoon was it was was Libra, which became DM. This stablecoin came along, which seemed to threaten um, the entire monetary stability of the of the planet. Something central banks couldn't control. Now. Stablecoins have, over the last couple of years, become uh, symbiotically linked to what's going on the decentralized finance, the DeFi markets, the totally unintermediated um, markets. So what is your view, and I'll ask this question of each of you, as to how this interaction between CBDCs and DeFi, which is going to have to happen, um, how you think it's going to evolve? Do you think the central bank is going to try and crush DeFi? Or do you think they're going to find a way of working with it? Or do you think DeFi is going to evolve in response to uh, to CBDCs? 
Um, Rob, I'll give it to you first, because you're nodding. Sure, I I am, yes. So I guess, so there's a question about CBDC, stablecoin, and DeFi. And let's say that this is mirroring, you know, cash uh, or cash-like accounts, perhaps money market funds, funds, and market-based finance. I think everything, well, no offense to, you know, anyone watching, but a lot of what's being marketed by DeFi makes it sound like it's a digital version of traditional traditional banking. I do not think that's the case. I think it is a digital version of market-based finance and gets very sophisticated and in some cases opaque and allows for a certain amount, uh, in some cases, a lot of leverage. And it is un or at least under-regulated. So I think the issue here is if you have CBDCs and bringing more people into the digital space and then more comfortable with certain forms of stable coin or, uh, or algorithmic coins, and then they have more access and get more involved in DeFi, I think it is really calling out for scrutiny and regulation, um, not, not judging, but rather it needs to be within the regulatory perimeter because right now with the crypto assets and you know 100 plus billion in DeFi, pushing up crypto asset prices. It's really pushing on the verge of, of, of um, a concern for financial resilience and possibly, you know, in the not, not so medium term of financial stability. Did so I hear you draw a parallel there, Rob, between money market funds in the 70s, 80s, 90s and noughties, mm. which again were, you know, came from nowhere and seemed to cause a lot of trouble. Back yeah, in yes, 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 yes. I mean, they didn't come from nowhere. We had Regulation Q as part of the of the of the New Deal. We had limits on the on interest rates on deposits that made these these unregulated instruments super attractive. Nowadays, we have Basel III that drove up the cost of compliance for for banks significantly. We had a massive reduction in the cost of technology, and we have a rapid uh, increase in the size of the digital economy, which has outpaced the real economy for the past decade. The DeFi will in one form or another, play an important part as the backbone for the, the financial backbone of the digital economy. And I think it's important that central banks find a way to, to impose regulation. It's not enough to say, oh, you naughty little boys, we, we regulate you. You need to find a way to, to actually, when you pull on the lever, that something happens in the machine. And for that, I think CBDC is exactly the right way where you can have some DeFi protocols and, and services moved into a well-regulated space uh, we, we as central banks approve risk models of banks already. You know, there's there's certainly a model that can be adapted to approving DeFi um, projects. So I think there's a way to transition this into a system that works better for consumers and then ultimately also for the projects. Yeah, I'll just go real quick then just to kind of wrap up. I think most of it's been said, but what's interesting is DeFi today, really on one end of the spectrum, really unregulated. And then you have this notion of institutional DeFi or regulated DeFi, a bit of an oxymoron, but you know, two opposite ends of a scale. And I think there's a, there's a really good opportunity to allow these things to coexist. And the final thing I'll say is, you know, uh, the, the institutional DeFi space is very interesting to the private sector for the main reason of liquidity and liquidity savings. So how could you really unlock, you know, a tremendous amount of liquidity that's locked within institutions, corporates, even individuals? Right and provide a, again a substrate that's uh, a little bit safer than the unregulated space. Right, so I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Simon, a last word from you. Um, you've been working in Nigeria. Nigeria's had a the Nigerian authorities have had a view on cryptocurrencies, if not on on DeFi. Um, how do you think the relationship between CBDCs and DeFi is going to evolve over the next two or three years? Yeah, I guess a quick couple points. One on the DeFi point is that uh, what we've seen uh, emerge from DeFi media is sort of uh, acknowledging what Rob said is that uh, entities have been able to provide what are traditionally fairly expensive and inaccessible financial products um, in a in a, di- a distributed manner. Uh, in, a, in a permissionless manner, arguably. And so it's clear that there's demand for some of these more complex financial instruments, which are, again, traditionally only accessible to a small number of privileged financial stakeholders in the current system. So I find that very interesting. And if central banks uh, via CBDCs can open up those similar opportunities at lower costs and make them more accessible, then we may see um, some some demand for CBDC um, in, in uh, a more regulated form of DeFi. Uh, when it comes to the relationship between 
CBDCs in crypto. I do think that central banks are looking at ways that a CBDC could enable them to implement um, a, a more efficient uh, regulatory regime for, for regulating crypto trade. And it might involve having CBDCs as the required base trade pair for virtual asset service providers. Uh, you know, having them, you know, mandate that, okay, yes, you can run an exchange in our in a compliant fashion in a particular region or number of regions, and you need to use uh, our CBDC for the base trade pairs so that we can monitor inflows and outflows. Like I could see that happening and a number of other configurations. So it's definitely a tool that could enable, you know, more compliant uh, uh, digital currency activity or crypto activity more specifically. It could be the tool which delivers what uh, Copia was referring to as uh the lever that makes something happen in the regulatory sense. Sadly, I think we all have to stop there. Uh, we could, um, we'll stay with this subject because it's a fascinating one and there's always lots more to talk about than we have time to discuss. But for now we must stop. I'd like to thank our panelists, um, Rob Patlano from OECD, Ricardo Carrera from R3, Simon Chantry from BIT, and Copia George from UCT.